Hey! Let's talk about food and music, eating and grooving, munching and moving, forking and spooning, listening to tunes, yeah, dinner's on soon, and to get ready for, ready for, peanut butter and jams. You're listening to Peanut Butter and Jams with host Brenda and Jordy on CITR 101.9. Exploring local music and local food. Tune in to learn about the best eats and tunes from your neighborhood. And a weekly pairing for your date calendar. Warning. The endorsements and criticism expressed during the show are the opinions of the host, unless clearly identified as advertising. Put in your earbuds and fire up your taste buds. It's peanut butter and jams. Hello. Happy Tuesday. It's Thursday. Ah, oh, it's Thursday. Sorry, I've been sick and I'm, drunk. I may be a little less articulate and smart today. And you really want to just get that right out of the way I'm by just... saying the wrong day exactly. right off the bat. Exactly, but we do have some good things planned for today. That's true. We have um, uh, two topics that we're going to be discussing in uh, on this show. Uh, one is um, a documentary called Noma. And the other is, and uh, we are going to have a, a chef who works at a not-for-profit. Called Growing Chefs. That's right. Uh, what's her name? Mary Schultz. Mary Schultz. Chef Mary Schultz will be calling in to talk to us about Growing Chefs and what it is and why it's cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is cool. I like it. It's a program that teaches children how to... How to cook things and and how to grow things and about the cycle of food. Uh, So we're really excited to talk to her. Uh, We're going to start with a piece of music by Swim Team, a local band. And the album is called Freedom Constraint and the song is called Recourse. Mm -hmm.
to ski the world-famous slopes of Whistler? Boy, do we have great news for you. Escape the city in one of Zipcar's many mountain-ready vehicles. Plus, get $30 back in free driving credit when you tweet a selfie on the slopes at Zipcar Vancouver. Zipcar, wheels when you want them. You're listening to CITR 101.9 broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people.
Hello and welcome back. You are listening to Peanut Butter and Jams. I am uh, your host, Jordy. Brenda is with me as usual. And we were just listening to Dumb. A band called Dumb off the album Beach Church. And that was parts one, two, and three. The, tr- the whole Beach Church trilogy. And they were recently featured in Discorder magazine. So you can read all about them there. And then we played a track off the new CITR Pop Alliance compilation, uh, which we'll talk a bit more about later. And that was a track by Cult Babies. Uh, Sister Nine was the name of the track. Uh, But we have a guest on the line with us now. Can you hear us? Absolutely. Hey. Hi. So we've got Chef Mary Schultz, the founder of Growing Chefs, in to talk about her not-for-profit. Growing Chefs is... um a program that, to my understanding, um, goes into schools and teaches children how to grow some food and um, cook some food. Is that is that an accurate representation of it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we are a program um, that sends chefs and other community volunteers, but it was founded with chefs in mind. And we send the chefs into schools where they plant small, fast-growing vegetable gardens for kids and then when they start to harvest things from their gardens, the chefs teach them how to cook with what they grow. So it's just to take kids through that super empowering experience of planting something, nurturing it, and then eating it. I mean, personally, I don't think there's anything more incredible than that. What kind of vegetables do they grow? Uh, we tend to grow things that are sort of quick and easy and accessible. The program runs over the course of three and a half months. So it has to be things that you can at least get something out of during that time. And we do almost all of our gardening and windowsill gardens in the classrooms. We try as much as possible to access um, communities where kids may not have as much, um, you know, green space or access to green space. And so we want to teach them that it's possible to grow anything, even if you have to grow it on your windowsill or on your balcony or whatever. So we tend to grow things like, you know, lettuces, beets that grow Mm -hmm. quickly, peas and beans, and things that the kids can just get a lot of reward out of very quickly. Well, that sounds really fun. Um, what uh, what sort of food do they make with them? Uh, at the end of the program, they follow a f- two different recipes. They well, actually three different recipes, I should say. They make a super nutritious salad using the greens from their garden. In fact, in that lesson, they also act at a play where a soccer team needs to win a big game, and they eat the salad, and it gives them all kinds of special powers because we relate each vegetable in the salad to different vitamins and minerals that help boost different qualities a soccer player might need. And then uh, we do a stir fry and a soup as well. Wow, that sounds really fun. Yeah, it's so much fun. It's fun for the kids, and of course it's super fun for the chefs and volunteers. I mean, What age are the kids? Uh, We originally started with the primary program, grades one through three, so they're, you know, anywhere from six to eight or so, and recently in the last couple of years, we introduced an intermediate program working with kids um, in grades four, five, six, so they're a little bit older at that point, and then we can get into some deeper discussions about sustainability and urban agriculture and maybe a little bit more about why we're doing the program, but the little kids get a ton out of it as well. I mean, just the experience of working with food and vegetables goes so far. Um, well, I have a question for you based on that. Why are you doing the program? What do you teach the well, four, five, sixes? Yeah, well, I'm a professional pastry chef myself, and I started this program 10 years ago after a few years of working in professional kitchens, particularly in fine dining, 
And I was so inspired by all the passion for local agriculture, local food systems, you know, sustainability, working with farmers, working with growers that I saw all around me in kitchens, but I just felt like that knowledge was trapped behind kitchen walls, and I wanted to help chefs get out into the community and share what they knew and help inspire and teach other people to, you know, be excited about those things. Um, And working with kids just seemed like kind of a fun way to do it, a good way to get people interested in volunteering, basically, and there's so much you can do with kids. So, you know, of course, we talk about... you using and working with local food, growing your own food, why that might be important. Um, We talk about seasonality, we pickle, you know, we teach the kids how to pickle. With the older kids, we're really working on some nutrition aspects as well and teaching them how to read and write recipes, which is a really important skill to learn. And with the younger kids, we tend to kind of cover some of the same topics, but we package it in really fun crafts and games and activities that make it accessible to somebody of any age. And uh, what sort of volunteers do you get to work with the kids? Well, we have a, a just, I would say the base of our, or the sort of bulk of our volunteer base are chefs and industry professionals. So, you know, servers and restaurant managers and pastry chefs. But we've also expanded over the last few years to, you know, basically have anyone who's interested in volunteering, particularly avid gardeners people who are passionate about food and local agriculture. We tend to have actually a large contingent of students from UBC, from the Land and Food Systems Program and the Nutrition nutrition Program, um, anywhere where people have something to share and they want to be part of a team hanging out in a classroom and having a really great time. And anybody who volunteers gets to be called chef and wear chef's Mm white. So it's kind of fun for that reason, too. Have you had a lot of buy-in from schools? Is it easy to, to break in there? And, and have you had any resistance from, from teachers or principals? Or parents? No, absolutely. In fact, we every year run a waiting list. Um, this year in particular, I know we have um, 39 classrooms across Metro Vancouver signed up, and we are currently sitting with a waiting list of 12 teachers because we just can't quite, or we haven't quite yet accessed as many volunteers as we need. We've never really advertised the program. We've never, you know, particularly approached anyone and asked them to deliver it. The word just gets around and teachers, you know, come on board and sign up. And we have to, unfortunately, let let a few of them down every year. It's very popular in schools. I think it's a timely subject as well. I mean, the last 10 years, these issues have become more and more you know, talked about, and teachers may not always have the personal background to address them as well as chefs or other volunteers with that particular knowledge can do. Well, it sounds like um, you do have a need for volunteers. How, If someone was listening and they wanted to get involved, uh, how would they go about doing that? It's very easy. You would go to the website, growingchefs.ca, and follow the links to sign up to volunteer. There's a super easy application form and you would get a call from us and get signed up for an orientation session. The program this year starts at the end of March, beginning of April. So we'll we'll be running orientations regularly over the next few months. Sounds good. You mentioned to us earlier that you were also starting other social enterprise businesses in Vancouver. Just curious if you could tell us a bit about a bit more about that. Yeah, well, in my professional life, I am a chocolatier and pastry chef, and I've been fortunate enough for the last few years to work for an amazing organization called East Van Roosters. We are a bean-to-bar chocolate shop 
coffee roaster and social enterprise in the downtown east side. So we employ women in transition back into the workforce and help them gently ease back into experiencing what it's like to work in a, you know, traditional job. Um, we also make amazing chocolate and delicious coffee. And on Monday, the 22nd, we're opening um, a bakery branch of our social enterprise. So we're going to be doing some really simple but delicious baking um, and employing some more women to do it. What's the bakery going to be called? It's also called East Van Roasters okay. Bakery. Sorry. We're keeping uh, it in the family. That's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's fact, on Car- Carolyn Hastings, you said? Yeah, the original East Van Roasters, the chocolate shop, is at 319 Carroll, so just uh, between Hastings and Cordova on Carroll. And the new bakery, it's just it's right at the corner of Hastings and Carroll, so you can almost see one from the other. Well, that sounds great. I actually uh, work down there, so I might stop by sometime next week. Awesome. You should. Check it out. We're only gonna, The bakery itself is only going to be open 830 to 230. It's a breakfast and lunch deal, mm-hmm. but the chocolate shop is open 10 to 5. That sounds great. Um, Well, thanks so much uh, for talking to us. Um, Just before we go, um, could you give us the website for Growing Chefs um, one more time just so that everyone can find it? Absolutely. It's growingchefs.ca. Great. Well, we'll post that to our Facebook page in case anyone can't find it. Um, Thank you so much, Mary. And Thank good you luck for with, the call. And good luck with your new businesses. And getting volunteers thanks out so for much. them. Perfect. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for putting the word out. Great. All right. Have a great night. You too. Okay. Bye. Uh, so just to transition on, we'll be talking about Noma in a few songs, but we're going to play a track by Stefano Fertilla from the CITR Pop Alliance compilation called Heartland.
Here in Vancouver, we celebrate our diversity and culture, and CITR is making FunDrive all about it. Our goal this year is to raise funds to help grow more writers, broadcasters, and media producers, increasing the unique voices that grace our airwaves. Whether it's about specific cultural communities, musical genres, or alternative news, we want to hear it. Be a part of CITR's community. Donate, get cool swag, and party with us. The telethon goes live on February 25th, but the online donation page is up now. Go to citr.ca slash donate. Hello, and uh, we are back, and we have a new guest. Rob, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Perfect. Sorry, your levels are a little low. We're just going to bump you up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was late spring from the CITR Pop Alliance, and before that, Stefana Fertilla from the Pop Alliance, and before that, Cult Babies from the Pop Alliance. Rob, what is this Pop Alliance? This Pop Alliance is a new record that we have coming out uh, as a co-release with Mint Records and CITR. It's coming out on Friday, February 26th. I'm so excited. We're very excited about it, showcasing all the new and awesome bands in Vancouver. So this uh, Pop Alliance was curated by a bunch of CITR DJs, Andy who, Resto. Who was involved? Uh, Andy Resto from the Borough, Duncan from Duncan's Donuts. Who else, Rob? Uh, I believe Eleanor and Nelly. Nelly from Cat's Pajams on Friday and Eleanor from Femme Concept on Fridays. I also believe that um, Nicholas was involved as well as John Q. If that's correct. Yeah, so lots of different CITR DJs, and all the money from sales goes to the fun drive. Yeah, so that's um, a really cool thing that you can do to help support CITR if you are interested. In pre previous years, it, I know it's been a prize for fun drive, but um, this year anyone can get it. Yeah, you can pre-order it on the website or stop by the station next week, Friday, and pick up a physical copy. We're also doing a LP release show, which is the same as our Fun Drive finale. So a whole bunch of bands from the album will be playing on March 4th at the Hindenburg, and you can listen to tracks from the album live and get the record. Cool. So will the bands be playing, like, all the bands playing will be playing a song, their song from the yeah, top line. Yeah, just one song, just one song, over and over and over. <laughs> no, they'll play a like a twenty minute set. That's that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, sounds pretty good. Thank you, Mint Records. <laughs> Thank you, CITR, for doing all the hard work and compiling it. No problems. Um, so now we're going to play a song from the Pop Alliance, and then Rob's going to come back in his other capacity as a peanut butter and jams correspondent and talk about. Noma with us. Yes. So this is Poor Form and the song's called July.
and we are back. You are listening to Peanut Butter and Jams, and we have Rob with us still on the phone. And I wanted to ask you guys about a film, a documentary film called Noma that you both saw. What is um, this documentary? Uh, this documentary is about the restaurant in Copenhagen uh, called Noma. It um, was a two-star Michelin restaurant. Uh, the highest that you can achieve is actually a three-star Michelin rating. They only got two, but it was uh, noted as the best restaurant in the world for three years, I believe, uh, 2011, 2012, and 2014. Who, who was saying it was the best restaurant in the world? Uh, Brenda, do you remember exactly who that was? No, boy. I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah, I don't remember the exact organization. But it's some uh, well-recognized officiating body. Yeah. yeah. Um, and no, I, and just to clarify, um, for those of you who don't know, a Michelin star, even getting one Michelin star is huge. No, all, There's no restaurants in Canada, to my knowledge, that have, None. That have a Michelin star. There's a, they're very, very rare. I believe that's correct. Yeah, there's, there's definitely no one in Vancouver with one. And I, I know there's some, like, some of the ones that I know of are some of the most famous restaurants in the world. They're places like the French Laundry or, um, um, I, I can't remember. I can't think of any other right now, but I know that that yeah. one at least has one. Okay, so yeah. why why <laughs> is Noma so famous? Um, I think that they focused on something that people in Scandinavia generally hadn't, which was uh, developing a cuisine that was specific to the region. So Scandinavia is not typically somewhere that people think of as being a culinary powerhouse. And uh, at Noma, they really challenged that mentality and focused on uh, local and seasonal ingredients for the most part. And they developed a lot of their own recipes that were based on what was available uh, kind of within arm's reach, so to speak, at uh, any given time. So the, the seasonality of it is very interesting and would uh, cause them just to come up with some interesting creations, as you can imagine. In the dead of winter, what are you going to, what are you actually going to put on a plate to eat in a high, very, very high-end restaurant? Um, what was the uh, what was the documentary like? Like, what was sort of what were some of the themes that they explored in it? Um, it was it was kind of like about the restaurant itself and why it was challenging. Um, the traditional understanding of what uh, local cuisine means. That was a, a really high part of it. Also, it focused on um, Rene Redzepi, who's a, the founder and head chef of Noma. It focused on his background. Um, he, he's from Macedonia, um, and, you know, his parents moved, or I believe it's just his father, moved to Denmark when he was young. And uh, there was... You know, they were met with some racism and things like that as being outsiders. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a common theme as well throughout the movie, is how he coexisted in Denmark. Does it talk about like the authenticity of like whether he can really be seen as creating a regional cuisine when he's not? He didn't like grow up with it. Yeah, there was a bit of that, but I think the general consensus was that he really didn't care. He was yeah. quite uh, iconoclastic, mm -hmm. and he just wanted to do something that he thought was appropriate. Um, he really kind of brushed off a lot of the criticisms of 
because it's a bit of a red herring. It doesn't really matter, right? He's still focused on what the region has to offer at at any given time. So he's doing it more for from a regional perspective rather than a heritage perspective. Right. And there was definitely a lot of, uh, he was getting a lot of acclaim uh, from a lot of people around the world, but definitely people in Norway who felt like he, he really, uh, he was doing more than the average Norwegian to uh, bring in people and to appreciate the culture and the landscape and really uh, uh, contribute to the vibrancy of their culture and, and their offerings. I saw like an interesting quote um, in the preview uh, of the movie where he talks about how he's like, can there even really be a best restaurant in the world? Um, does it talk about that? Like, is it a thing that like after watching the documentary, do you feel like it was the best restaurant in the world? And that's like a thing that can exist. Um, I, it didn't actually focus so much on that kind of existential question. I, I felt, I don't know, Brenda, what did you think? Uh, there was a lot of the documentary did talk about this. Well, because it showed them winning several years and then not winning and feeling the pressure and kind of like crumbling and kind having to reinvent themselves in some mm-hmm. ways and do something new. And then at the end, they they won again, and it was a big, a really big deal because they'd gone through this whole journey of like now that we're the best restaurant, what does that mean for us? And how do we, how do we, what do we strive for now? And what does, yeah, things like kind of fell apart and the pressure of, of retaining that award. Like, did they care that they kept, what, that they should keep winning the award? Yeah, it added a lot of pressure to their restaurant. So instead of just, we're going to do this really cool concept that's totally different from anybody else, it became more about how, how do we continue to be this world, this world best thing? I don't know, did that... Did that resonate with your experience, Rob? A little bit, but I, I feel like it wasn't so much a focus uh, thematically through the movie as well. I remember when he said, yeah, you know, are you going to go for that third Michelin star? And he just said, no, if they want to give it to me, then they'll give it to me. But that's not really the point of why I'm here and doing this project. So I feel like he kind of brushed off a lot of those criticisms and just kind of paved his own path. One of the coolest things about the documentary was watching them forage in the wild and meeting all these really rugged, bearded farmers who were, were growing this stuff and digging roots out of the ground and finding tubers. And that was a really interesting thing, uh, watching them trying to discover new types of food in the landscape that they can serve. Mm-hmm. There was also a big, uh, like a big, like what Rob talked about, about being prepared for the winter. They were doing a lot of fermenting things, a lot of canning things, a lot of preserving things right. in order to collect the food during the summer and have it all stocked up to last through the winter. Um, so Brenda was saying that this made you, Rob, think about um, what um, what is a regional cuisine and who has one and and who who doesn't can you i don't know if i'm really um encapsulating <coughs> what your thoughts were can you describe maybe what um what what this movie made you think about yeah no you're you're on the right track for sure um i was just more interested it made me reflect on uh canadian cuisine 
and you know, I think that that's what I got a lot from from Noma and just my understanding of Noma and seeing this movie was that he really reflected on what it meant to have a regional cuisine in Denmark. Um, and that made me think about what it meant to have a regional cuisine uh, in Canada or, you know, in Vancouver or British Columbia. And, um, you know, we import a lot of our cultural ideas, especially food is something that I don't feel um, Canadians have cultivated their own identity with. I kind of think that that might be because Canada is primarily an immigrant uh, country where we we import a lot of ideas from whatever cultures people have come from originally. And so that's um, like that, like Canadian cuisine is kind of like a smorgasbord of all sorts of different countries, cuisines that's been, uh, that's kind of percolated in Canada for a little bit of time at this point and kind of, but hasn't really, um, it doesn't really have like strong things that make it Canadian at this point. Yeah, totally, and I would agree. Um, I think it's just interesting to think about how no one's kind of looked inward and said, what do we have, you know, in Canada that we can put together that's regional, that's seasonal, that we can put together on a plate and come up with, like, a totally new cuisine that's unique. Um, Well, First Nations cuisines did do that already, so there's lots of things that are kind of based on the berries and fruits and um, wild game that are available. Although that's not like really what you would call like a dominant cuisine in Canada. It's just something that is a trend that's based on like what we have locally available. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. Um, I would just like to see that, um, you know, expanded upon and a little more in, in the public image almost, so to speak. Just, mm-hmm. It would be more interesting to kind of have that um, as an identity that we, I don't want to say export, but that people in other parts of the world come to know uh, and associate with Canada. Mm-hmm. I think that would be interesting. That's all. I just kind of looking inward, like I said, I kind of just thought, you know, do you one not day think you get... Can- do you not think that Canada has a regional, or maybe not like like there isn't Canadian any Canadian cuisine that's like identifiably Canadian? I wouldn't say not any, but I think it's I mean, very limited and it hasn't been compiled um, into a, a, even just a cookbook, so to speak. Um, there's definitely some things that come together that are regional, but I just think someone hasn't harnessed it in the way that I felt or the movie made me feel about uh, Noma. Mm-hmm. Like he really just harnessed what was local and seasonal mm-hmm. and really kind of took it and ran with it and turned it into something that was totally unique and creative and and seemed to blow people's minds around what chefs were doing a question i have about this is does this seem like the things that he was making are the sort of things that anyone in norway could could make like could this become actually a regional cuisine or can this only be like a fine dining experience i think it was kind of a combination of both i mean they, they didn't talk a lot about the specific dishes they talked a lot about the base ingredients Mm -hmm. um that's for sure and like what there was that one that really stood out which was some greens and a big dollop of yogurt and then some ants on it and everyone Mm kind of gasped Mm -hmm. but yeah sure i mean anyone could (laughs) anyone can take some greens and the yogurt and throw some ants on it that's very accessible 
I mean, I but, guess that's um, true. You could do that at home. Yeah, but I mean, that, that's I, some of his dishes, certainly, you could do at home. Some of them were definitely uh, far less accessible, that, and you'd have to have a commercial kitchen and know what you're doing to do. But, um, yeah, so I'd say some of them, mm-hmm. not all of them. But um, he was taking lots of, like, edible flowers. There was that shot. There, so there was a shot where um, him and his chefs were just on the side of the road picking uh, edible flowers and things like that. So it's, I guess it's all about what you do with the pieces that you're given, the ingredients that you're given, which was kind of miraculous to see what he chose to do with um, very limited resources relative to most kitchens in the world. Hmm. I did. Fi- I do think it's really interesting that um, the ethos he's kind of taking is unique to his restaurant and fine dining, where they don't. It doesn't sound like he's trying too hard to get rare ingredients that are viewed as being delicious. He's trying to find whatever he can find locally and making that delicious from what's uh, what's available, which is something that could be applied, which is something that could be done anywhere. Mm-hmm. Where it's like a lot yeah. of fine dining establishments will, I don't know, fly in bread from Paris because that's viewed as the best bread or um, get their wines from f- fancy the, most, the fanciest wine regions. And mm-hmm. There was a conversation in the film that talked about potatoes and how, how like we don't want a potato from france we don't want a potato from germany even though it's a potato and it might look like the same potato the flavor is slightly different because it's grown here in this soil Mm -hmm. so very much uh uh the climate and the landscape here shapes the taste of our food Mm -hmm. and even though you might find that same item somewhere else it's important that we do it here because it's unique yeah it sounds really interesting um it's it's um it's I, I think that that aspect of it's really interesting because it's something that can be applied anywhere mm-hmm. like it doesn't need yeah. to be you don't need to be in Norway to try and cook with all the things that you can find in the Canadian wilderness or or just like in your back door mm-hmm. yeah no and I think people would really be surprised if they tried to do it especially in British Columbia where it's like there's so much diversity right mm-hmm if you're, if you're looking at British Columbia as a region, it's like the Okanagan Valley, this huge fruit-producing region. You have all this coastline to get amazing fish and seafood. And then, uh, you know, in the Fraser Valley and things like that, it's, you can grow all sorts of different things. So um, I, would, I would just be interested to see what someone of that caliber would come up with if they came uh, to Canada and then they had this kind of limited palate, so to speak. Yeah, I, think I wonder would, if we could... Uh... If maybe the popularity of Noma is inspiring chefs to figure out what's perhaps the the most interesting regions in the world to uh, to try and do that sort of cooking in, because that would be cool. Maybe one of them mm-hmm. here. I don't know if they would. Well, but... there's almost too many options here in BC. I feel like in the prairies or up north, you'd have. Like, you think it'd be better if you were more limited. I think it would it would shape the character of your food a little more because mm-hmm. you'd have less options and you'd have to be more creative. Whereas here we grow so much of everything. Mm-hmm. So if you're you know if you're 
accepting stuff from farms versus stuff that you forage for and like how is that impacted by living in a city and what you can forage like urban foraging gets a little more complicated but you know like Fraser Valley to Okanagan to the coast is already very distinct Mm -hmm. in BC I guess it's depending on what sort of like rule set you would define for yourself when you were when you were doing that Mm mm-hmm and then since our regions tend to flow across the border a lot, it's less about Canadian and more about landscape. Yeah. Would it be a Canadian cuisine or would it be a Pacific Northwestern cuisine or would it be a British Columbian cuisine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's an interesting concept to think about and uh, I'd love to see some people try it at least. I think that was like the takeaway that I got from that movie was that he really just tried it. He didn't care he had lots of anecdotes about people who kind of would make fun of the restaurant what did they call it uh whale whale dick or something was the joke because it's oh, like yeah and seal something seal dick yeah. seal fuckers oh shoot sorry <laughs> Dr. brenda we're on the radio yes um context context that came from a film and i was directly quoting uh, to show to but show the call- flack that they, they got. They were calling it that because they served those things, or yeah, because that's very regional for Scandinavia. Um, is things like whale and seal, mm-hmm. and those are those are kind of like uh, reindeer and moose. I don't think moose. I'll take that back. I think just reindeer. Um, those are all kind of regional dishes in a way for a lot of the Scandinavian countries, which is why, yeah, a lot of people would make fun of them and say, what are you going to do? What, you've given yourself this very limited palate and what do you have to work with? Like, oh, So it whale? sounds like the people who are criticizing him didn't really understand what was available. Like they thought that there was almost nothing. Yeah, exactly. And I think he really like, he really dug deep and thought, okay, what can I do with uh, moss and ants and uh, wild mushrooms and all these types of things? that would, you know, sometimes generally go overlooked in a, in a Michelin rest- restaurant, certainly. And what were those creatures he was harvesting from the sea? Urchins. Sea urchins. Sea urchins. You can get that. Around. You can get those here, but Canada largely exports them again. Yeah, they're primarily seen as a dish to export to Asia, but sushi restaurants often have them if you're interested in trying urchin ever. Oh. Yeah, so... He was he was definitely handpicking some very uh, interesting ingredients that were atypical, and like I said, I just like to see people try that. Uh, it, yeah, whether it's Pacific Northwest, whether it's Canada, whether it's Vancouver, British Columbia, I don't know, but uh, I think it, I think it just drives people to a different level of creativity. Yeah, well, that sounds um, interesting. How's our time doing, Brenda? Um, we should sign off and get ready for the next show. But thank you so much for coming on the show, Rob, to talk about the record and the documentary. Um, before we let him go, uh, if someone wanted to watch this documentary, is this something that's in the- was in theaters, or can you did you rent it? Did you like how did you see it? How do, how would one see it? We went to see it at Van City Theater, so I'm not sure if you can find it online. It's called Noma, My Perfect Storm. And it's won a whole bunch of documentary awards. Um, but maybe if it's the sort of thing that if you ask for at Black Dog or um, Limelight, whatever video store you happen to like, they might make an effort to bring it in. Yeah, I suspect when it's done the, the film festival circuit, then it will be available. Cool. Well, um, thank you so much for talking to us, Rob. Um, make sure you stay tuned for 
Um, we've got a talk piece coming up next, which is called... Brenda, it's you have a, the name there. Yeah, it's a, another Rendezvous de la Francophonie piece produced by CHES in the Maritimes. And then um, later tonight, uh, Thunderbird Radio Hell with Ben Lai will be on. And, you know, whatever's on after him, I've, I don't know. Yeah, perfect. So next week, uh, in two weeks, will be our next show, which is our Fun Drive show. So we will be asking you to support the station and uh, come out to the Fun Drive finale on the 4th. Great. Have a good night. Bye. February 23rd, join CITR for the 14th annual